1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors In Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors In Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today on Warriors In Their Own Words, we hear from Captain Jason Cander, who served as an Army Intelligence Officer in Afghanistan. Jason spent years following his combat tour dealing with untreated and undiagnosed PTSD. He finally confronted it, and credits his treatment at the VA and the support of friends and family with saving his life. He wrote a book about the experience, titled Invisible Storm, to help other veterans and family members affected by PTSD. You may recognize Jason Kander's name from his career in politics. This interview does touch on that briefly, but the reason I wanted to share Jason's story is because I know it will save lives.
2: My name is Jason Kander. I'm a former captain in the United States Army. I was an Army intelligence officer for most of my time, but I finished my last few years as a platoon trainer in officer candidate school. So before 9-11, I was somebody who I looked at the idea of serving in the military as something that I wanted to do, but I was not sure I would ever do it. It existed in the maybe someday category in my mind. And I've been thinking about this more lately because, you know, with the book coming out, a lot more people have been asking me questions about, yeah, but really, why? Why would you do it? And because, you know, a lot of people are trying to get at, like, what made you come up wanting to serve? I mean, because, you know, I come from a background that wasn't as predisposed to it, right? Like, my grandpa and great uncle and great grandpa were in the army, but like, whose weren't? Everybody's were. It was World War II and World War I. You know, I went to a good college, I went to a good law school, and I was kind of on this path. But I think part of it was honestly, like, I grew up in the 80s and early 90s. And, like, man, some of the best movies were, like, Top Gun and Iron Eagle and all this kind of stuff. And, and I remember when I was a kid, like, I, you know, I washed out at, like, Weeblo in Cub Scouts. Like, I didn't make it very far. Um, but I remember for the brief period that I wore that blue uniform, I remember I would stand in the mirror and salute. Like, so there was something in me uh, from the beginning that, that lent me toward it. And I think that if 9 had not happened, there was about a 50-50 chance that I would have gone ahead and gone into the army. And probably honestly, I think what would have happened had 9-11 not happened, if I had served, I would have become like an air force JAG reservist or something because I would have wanted to get that uniform. And I would, have, I don't know what I would have done, but that was about a 50% chance I would have served. But instead 9-11 happened And I was in D.C. when it happened. And I remember standing in line to give blood down by the Capitol. You know, remember, we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have that stuff. So we didn't know what was going on. And my roommates and I stood out there for quite a while in line. And then a a woman who I think was a nurse who was taking blood came out and said, hey, we can't take any more blood today. Uh, Hope you find another way uh, to help. And right then it just kind of clicked. I was like, I'm joining the military. And for me, it was a simple choice. It was like, okay, my grandfather and my great uncle and my great grandfather, like they weren't military guys, they didn't have military careers, but their country went to war and they were in their early 20s. And so they went and they did their job and then they came home and they went on with their lives. And to me, I was like, I'm obviously going to do that. Like I'm not going to have other people go do this and I'm not going to be part of it. Because for one thing, I was like, I want to go get the bad guys. You know, I, I was just like, I'm upset. My country was attacked. And I, it just didn't make sense to me, the idea that like, well, I'm going to support the war, but not participate. Like, it just didn't calculate with me. And so I was, I remember the next day I looked up you know, like the physical fitness standards and what the test was like and all that. And I started doing push-ups and running and everything. And, you know, it wasn't that long after that, that I was an army intelligence officer. Um, So it was also weird for me because the other thing that happened is after I started getting in a really good shape, I busted my knee in a pickup football game, like real bad, like tore it up, my ACL, my meniscus, all this stuff. And I needed surgery. So I had to get surgery and physical therapy. So I'm on crutches and I'm at this East Coast college where... All the professors came from the Vietnam era, and they're looking at me going, dude, you are doing it wrong. Like, you're enlisting, like, you got your ticket out of, if there's ever a draft, you don't have to go. Like, nobody expects you to go. Your knee is all messed up. I was having to get a waiver from the Army to get in at all. And then a lot of my fellow students, who were mostly from the East Coast, we're going, like, why would you do that? Because where they were from, you joined the army if you didn't have any other options. And where I was from, like, there were guys from my high school baseball team who joined the army before 9-11 because it was just as good of an option as, as college to, to where I'm from. So there was a real disconnect between we, the way we saw things. And after a while, it started to piss me off because people kept saying to me, Why would you do that? Like you have an education. And then some people who were a little more crafty about it would say, well, there's got to be better ways for you to serve. And that always just seemed so arrogant and privileged to me because I was like, who the hell am I who has had this great life because, you know, America's been really good to my family to be like, no, 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 that's for other people. But I'm for the war. You know, I'm for the war in Afghanistan. but, But other people should do it, not me. It just didn't calculate to me. So I went over there to fill a spot in a unit, uh, which means instead of going over with a whole unit, I went over, uh, first just me. I literally got on a plane at Kansas City International Airport, flew to Baltimore, and then got on another plane with a bunch of folks who were going over and flew over. But first I get on this plane in Kansas City to fly to Baltimore. And everybody else is like, just going to Baltimore. And I'm going to war. And I remember thinking how strange that was. Uh, but then I get on what they called the rotator uh to fly. I think we flew into um, Kuwait and then over to Al Yadid in Qatar and then got on a C-130 and flew uh into Bagram Air Base. And I remember being so excited to get to Afghanistan because that's what I had trained for, you know? I mean, this was. The Super Bowl. Th- this is what I had wanted to do. It's why I had joined the military. And and I had this um, set of preconceived notions that were wrong, right? The first was that it was going to be like it was in training, where as soon as you're going to go outside the wire, you're going to have all the stuff that you're supposed to have. You're going to have armored vehicles, and there's there's always going to be like a security escort. you're always going to be in convoy stuff, where there's going to be guys to the right and left, and there's going to be big old scary dudes on machine guns up over top of your Humvee. that was my first misconception because I was an intelligence officer and I went outside the wire plenty during my, you know, four month tour. But I was always, almost always, with the exception of like a handful of times, I was in um, a Mitsubishi Pajero, which is basically just Mitsubishi's answer to the Ford Escape with no armor. And a lot of the time it was just me and a translator. Some of the time we were in a convoy, but very rarely was there armor. And uh, and I remember the very first convoy to go from Bagram to Kabul, like right after I'd gotten into into country. And I I, I was, like, worried I was going to puke because I was just so physically, like, ill at the idea of, like, okay, we're just going outside in this? Like, it wasn't what I expected. And then the, the other preconceived notion I had was that there was one kind of combat, and it was what you had seen in the movies. It was Black Hawk Down. It was Band of Brothers. It was John Wayne movies. If you could not hear bullets whizzing by your ear and you weren't being knocked back by explosions and hurling grenades over a berm in front of you, then you weren't in combat. And that stuck with me a long time. So when I, as an intelligence officer, was going into meetings with people who I couldn't know whether or not it was a trap, who might want to kill me, I was going outside the wire, just meeting a translator a lot. And I was in this role where I had to go and I had to meet with people of really unsavory character and questionable allegiances, not knowing if I was going to get out of those meetings alive or not. But I never fired my weapon, the entire deployment. I came home fundamentally believing I was not a combat veteran who had, and I had never been to combat and that I had suffered nothing traumatic. And I had not accounted for the fact that I had spent hours and hours at a time on a regular basis in the most dangerous place on the planet, really vulnerable with nobody knowing where I was. So nobody knowing to to come to save me, uh, if things went bad and the effect that it had on my brain to sit there and to try and monitor all the doors and to watch the hands of everybody I was meeting with and to keep track of the mental math of how many, you know, potential bad guys there were between me and my vehicle if I needed to start shooting and all that kind of stuff, the the effect that that had on me. And it wasn't until years later when I went to the VA, finally, that a clinical social worker explained it back to me in that way and was like, that's combat. You're a combat veteran and that's traumatic what you went through. And th- that I started to begin to be able to accept that. I told a little bit of this story in the book. It's not one of the most momentous, but I think it, it's not bad at figuring, at kind of relating what my job was kind of like. Um, to back up for a second, you know, my job was to do anti-corruption, anti-espionage investigations within the Afghan government mostly, uh, which is to say that I did what my what my colonel referred to as thugent, meaning a made-up term, thug intelligence. So he jokingly said that what I did is I went out and I developed relationships with thugs in order to gain information about other thugs. Uh, so that was what I did. And it ran the gamut. And I remember uh, this one time. Going to a government building uh, in Kabul to meet with these guys who were um, in the uh, role of fighting narco trafficking. Um, they were, of course, also narco traffickers. I mean, because you know you want somebody with some expertise in that role. Um, but you know that's just how it was in Afghanistan, right? They they were they were fighting narco trafficking, but they were also you know cleaning out the competition for their work. But. They were competent and so they were valuable, and so the US needed to work with them. And we generally tried, my translator and I, Salam, we generally tried not to go too many places after dark. It just got a little hairy. You know, I mean, we didn't have night vision goggles. And in general, like if you're going to meetings with people who might want to kill you, uh, you'd rather do it during the day, right? Particularly when you have to kind of keep an eye on your surroundings. It's a little easier to do that when you can see. And so this was a government building that, by my recollection, had several floors. I don't remember exactly how many, but it was like more than three, right? Each floor had what seemed like it probably had at least 10 offices in it. Now, it was also mostly just completely gutted. And most of these, it clearly, like, during the war, it had been all torn up, like during, you know, the fight with the Taliban initially, or when the Taliban came in. So there were, you know, when, it, when we came in, there was a guy who was supposed to be a gate guard in the little parking lot. And he wasn't there because it was late enough. And it was like, all right, that's not the best. Uh, and we came in. And I remember as we, as we um, went in to go see these two fellows we were going to meet with, I remember walking in the front door, which wasn't a door. It was just a big hole uh, because there was no door there anymore. Um, and I remember looking in the elevator shaft and seeing a huge pile of dirt that made no sense and a shovel sticking out of it. And I remember thinking like, who is just in here piling dirt into this elevator shaft that no longer works? And I just remember registering it and thinking, so who, who'd they bury in there? Or what did they bury in there? Not like in a hmm, whimsical way, like, oh, noted. And so we go in and we go up the stairs, a couple of floors, I think, and randomly out of all these completely gutted offices, there's one office right in the middle of this one floor that is just like, <laughs> it's palatial. And it is just beautiful. It's got all these nice rugs. It's got you know pictures hung on the walls. I mean, it looks like it doesn't belong in this gutted building. And it's the office where these two fellas do their government job out of. Uh, it's also the office where they presumably run a narco-trafficking operation out of. And we sit down, and there's these big double doors behind us. And uh, and this seemed to always happen in these meetings. Nobody ever seems to set you up when you're in the job I was in uh, where they want you to sit where you can face the door. It always seemed like my back was to some door, or there'd be multiple doors, multiple entrances into an office, so I'm having to figure out like where to sit. And the best way to describe it is it's like, it's like there's this crackle right behind your head, like you're aware of those doors and you've got to concentrate on your job. And your job is to get the best information out of these people that you're talking to that you can. And doing that means you've got to exude a very trusting vibe. You've got to be very personal or very personable. It's not unlike a political meeting in that way. You've really got to win people over. You got to be charming. And the best way to do that Uh, I quickly learned, and I actually later applied this in politics, is just to ask about them. Is just to be deeply interested in them. Everybody, whether they're through the textured glass of language translation or they're your neighbor, they just like talking about themselves. That's what makes people like you. So, you know, I just start with a lot of questions about them. And the whole time I'm aware of these doors behind me, and I'm aware that we're in this giant building that uh, there's no way for me to account for how many other people are in the building. I didn't get to like clear every floor, right? And I got these doors behind me and, and these guys, they're just so shady. And, and I, the other thing I remember that was kind of funny is they were in Western suits. They looked really nice, which is when you're in Afghanistan, one of the ways you can tell that somebody's really moved a lot of poppy is if they're in really nice clothes and they have really nice teeth. Um, and these guys did. And they're in these really nice Western suits. And they're also shoveling uh, wood into a wood-burning furnace. That's why the room is still warm. This was like December. And that's just kind of a funny juxtaposition, I always thought, when people were dressed really nice, but clearly living in in what we would consider very primitive conditions. And I don't even remember in that one, because I did so many of these, I don't really remember the subject of the conversation or where it went. But I remember feeling like, wow, if this is a setup, I got no chance in order to demonstrate this pantomime of trust, I have to turn my back to these doors. If somebody comes in behind me, I'm not going to hear it. There's no way. Like, And this building is so big, no one's going to hear us. And, and I remember sitting there and thinking, and I talked about this a little in the book, when I briefly talked about this as an example, I remember just kind of wandering through this uh, thought process of like, so if they never find you, how do they handle telling your family? And then just kind of really matter-of-factly playing out in my mind, like, so I guess they would tell Diana, probably somebody would go to the house, and I was like, all right, and so then how will Diana handle it? Like, I was like, okay, I guess she'll, will she call my parents, or will she drive over? And I was like, I guess my dad will probably stay really strong for everybody, that's kind of what he does. So I just, it, you know, it was kind of wild, like, to just sit there and just real matter-of-factly figure out, like, well, how is this going to go down? So... That's kind of what the job was like. And so it's not like, and it's not like I was doing that every day, but I was doing that. And then other times, you know, I I was commanding convoys and stuff like that. I had other duties. I was a second lieutenant in a combat zone where uh, I was one of the only second lieutenants in my unit. Really, I think maybe the only second lieutenant in my unit. And I was in a lieutenant colonel's job, which is a whole other story. And so I had situations where I had like, a whole lot of responsibility, way more than your average butter bar was going to have. But then in other ways, I was the only butter bar. So it was like, hey, uh, you want to command this convoy? You want, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, every day was a little different. But again, you can see why I came home not thinking I'm a combat veteran, but thinking I'm just an asshole who went to meetings and not accounting for the fact that, you know, those meetings were extremely stressful and that, I had done something that most Americans uh, never do, which is I had, for a period of a few months, on a regular basis, had to come face-to-face with my very real physical fear of the real prospect of being killed, kidnapped or killed, or both, and also prepare myself mentally to take a life. like To look at a person right in front of me and think, if this person does this, or if this door opens, or if this thing comes into play, I will kill this human being that is, right now, just having a conversation with me and offering me tea. And I really underestimated the way that affected my brain chemistry. For me, yeah, man, I came home. And my like out-processing, for, you know, going back into the reserves, was like, I went, I signed a piece of paper at Leavenworth. And then, like, I I cooled down, so to speak. I just sat around for a week and a half. And then I went back to my job at a law firm. And, you know, so I'd gone from being an army intelligence officer in Afghanistan doing really important stuff to now I'm, like, writing legal memos. It's not like I was a senior lawyer, right? Like, I was right out of law school. So I'm just writing legal memos and stuff. And, And it wasn't long. It was a few months before a partner who I really like came in and was explaining to me how important this thing I was writing was. You know, this is really important. And I remember I said, yeah, anybody going to die? And we both kind of knew in that moment, like, yeah, I'm probably not going to work here very long. And I didn't. And so it was just hard to find people who could relate. And then then I got into politics, and, and I found little flashes of, you know, that We're all in this together and going for a cause. Like you probably experienced this—that feeling in a campaign of like, "Hey, I—I got—I kind of with my team again. I got a team together, and so that it sometimes felt good. It never felt the same as the military, but I got little pieces of that. And then my best times were when I was, you know, drill weekends or active duty periods. Those were great. And then, and then I got out of the military altogether, and and then campaigning wasn't really doing it anymore. And it just, yeah, it became more and more isolating. And then after a while, I was in this position where I supposedly had all these friends, right? I mean, I had, I'd become famous and I went places and people knew me, but I felt very alone. And it had been so long that I had forgotten that I didn't used to be like that. I didn't used to have night terrors every night. I didn't used to have, you know, this feeling that I was in danger all the time. I didn't used to have this like ever present stress that I could feel in my body. And since I had refused to accept the idea that it was connected to my service, I just started to resign myself to the idea that this is just how I am now, because I'd forgotten what it was like to not be that way.
0: Conflicted: A History Podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
3: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
2: So there's a lot of factors that prompted me to take so long to go get help. Um, You know, some of it is the stigma of being a public figure and frankly wanting to be president of the United States and thinking that people might be really unlikely to give me that opportunity if they knew that I was not sleeping because of night terrors or, you know, stalking my house with a pistol at night because I was convinced there were intruders. Uh, So there were a lot of things that kept me from it. But I think the biggest factor was... I really believed that if I said that what I was experiencing, even said to myself that what I was experiencing was PTSD, that it that was stolen valor, that you know I knew guys who had been shot, I knew guys who had had to take lives, and I had not. I knew people who had been there for a lot longer than four months, which is, you know, to me wasn't anything. Uh, I didn't think I didn't think that counted, and so. Like, to me, the the worst thing I could possibly be was a person who stole valor. And I had close friends who I felt had done so much more than me. And the idea of putting myself in the same category as them in any way was just a non-starter. And I just wouldn't do it. And the thing about that is is that it's not just about the prospect of stolen valor. It's about this necessary form of brainwashing that the military does with us. And that is, and I say necessary because I'm not really knocking it. And it is that from the moment you show up at BASIC to the moment that you render or return your final salute, the message has gotten across to you in every possible avenue that what you're doing is no big deal. And there's a reason for that. It's because I I needed to go into meetings with people who might kidnap me. Not once. I needed to do it like for my job. And my buddy Steven needed to be able to go out on patrol after getting shot at the day before, after seeing his friend get shot at the day before. And the only way that we're going to do that thing, which is actually quite unnatural, is if we believe that it's no big deal and is if we believe that other people are doing things that are much worse and much harder and there's no reason for us to get all concerned about what we're doing. So I don't really have a problem with that. Because Stephen, you know, as a Marine in Fallujah, he needed to be able to go on those patrols. And as an army intelligence officer in Afghanistan, I needed to be able to go into meetings with people who might be luring me into a trap. If that didn't happen, he couldn't look out for his fellow Marines in Fallujah, and I couldn't bring back the information that was valuable to the mission in Afghanistan. The problem is, is that when we get out, nobody flips that switch off. Nobody sat me down, nobody sat Stephen down and said, OK, Now that you're leaving, or now that you're going home and finishing your deployment, you should know that was some crazy shit. And yeah, there are people who have it worse, but not that many people. Like, over the course of all humans, there's not that many people. And by the way, it actually doesn't matter whether people had it worse. Because, you know, this is what I learned later in therapy at the VA, is that my brain has no idea what Steven's brain experienced, my brain has no idea what you know uh, what's anybody else's brain experienced, and more importantly, my brain doesn't care, and it doesn't affect what happens to my brain, and it's irrelevant, and so I have people say to me all the time, sometimes it's vets who have been having trouble with something, and they say, you know, but I, I didn't do what you did, sometimes it's people who never served who are like telling me about their car accident, or their divorce, or losing a loved one, or something happened in their childhood. And they'll they'll say, but I, I, you know, I didn't go to war or anything. And I always stop those people short, and I say, let's be clear. My experience does not affect your experience. It doesn't matter. I spent almost 11 years trying to rank my trauma out of existence, trying to convince myself that it wasn't that big of a deal. And therefore, it couldn't be PTSD. Now, I had a lot of authority for that, which is everybody I met in the Army had made clear to me that what I had done was no big deal. So I had no reason not to believe that. The truth was, it was a very big deal. What all of us have done is a very big deal. You know, If you had a bad divorce, it's a very big deal. Anything that is still bothering you and is disrupting your life, it's happening because it was a big deal. And it took me a long time to realize that, and it took me therapy to realize that. And now that I understand it, I have gone from being a person who was absolutely convinced that I had not done enough for my country, for my you know, fellow soldiers, to warrant the uh, adulation and attention that I was getting as a politician, you know, that I had not earned that at all, to being someone who actually now feels like America and I are square. And I've actually done quite a lot for America. And I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of what I've done with my life. And I actually now have the peace of believing that I've earned the right to enjoy myself and enjoy my life. I still do things that I care about. I still do things for my country. I still do things for my community. But the difference is I no longer do them because I think I have to to prove to myself that I'm not an irredeemable piece of shit. I do them because they're important to me, or because I want to, or because I want to help somebody I like. And I never do anything so that I can do something else. And I do stuff because I want to do it. And there's a lot of reasons why I do. But the big difference now is I have the peace of mind of knowing I've done enough. And that's huge for me. So at the beginning of 2018, I, as I was chasing this redemption mirage, was preparing to run for president of the United States. And uh, that was going decently well. And I was stringing these endorphin hits together. Uh, and as long as I could keep these close endorphin hits together, I could feel like I was still going and, and I didn't have to spend time with myself in my own mind. And that that was allowed me to at least be able to get through the day. And at some point, those endorphin hits, I just built up too much of a tolerance. And it culminated with me giving a major speech in New Hampshire on national television that was pretty much a I'm going to run for president speech. And it was very well received. And it should have been like the endorphin hit of all endorphin hits. And instead of lasting a few days like they usually did, it lasted about 12 hours. And then I felt nothing. And I was like, "Okay, this is pretty serious. So a few days later, I decided that what I needed to do to chase redemption was I needed to go home to Kansas City, which is where I was living, but I was just never there because i was on airplanes all the time. And I needed to become mayor of my hometown. I thought, if I can make a difference that I can see in my hometown, that's going to make me feel better. The other promise I made to myself was, I was going to go to the VA and get help. I wasn't ready to admit to myself that it was PTSD, but I was like, maybe I can go figure this out at the VA. So I start running for mayor. Look, when you go from running for president to running for mayor, you should be the front runner, and I was. It was probably not going to be close. It was going well, uh, but I didn't keep my promise to go to the VA, and that campaign should have been so much fun. I mean, it was like, you know, I'm fifth generation Kansas Cityan, and here I was the prohibitive front runner. Everybody knew me. It should have been a blast, you know, but it wasn't because I was just getting worse and worse and worse, and now I was getting worse faster uh, than I had. And that scared me. I was starting to have suicidal thoughts. So here I was like, basically cruising to the mayorship of my hometown that I love. And I was thinking more more and more about ending my life. But there was one day on that campaign that personally was really great for me and really inspiring. And it was the day that I toured a place called Veterans Community Project. Veterans Community Project had been started by a group of combat veterans in Kansas City who had decided that they could do more uh, for their fellow veterans and that they could treat all veterans. They could help all veterans, regardless of their discharge status, regardless of the nature of their service, how long they served, whether they were active duty, none of that shoots and ladders business, that they would just help every veteran, everybody who served in the military. That was their vision. So they first opened an outreach walk-in center that uh, was doing that. And it was serving thousands of vets a year and making a huge difference for a lot of people, saving lives, really making a difference in the suicide epidemic in Kansas City. The next thing they did is what the organization is much better known for now, which is they went after veterans' homelessness by creating a village of tiny houses that sort of mirrored active duty housing uh, with wraparound case management services on site to restart the military to civilian transition back at day one and transition homeless veterans successfully back into being fully contributing members of society, moving out of the village and into permanent housing. They were doing this with an enormous 85% success rate, which nobody had ever done. So I go to tour Veterans Community Project because, you know, when you're a politician, you tour nonprofits. It's something you do. And I'd done it a lot. And I'd never been knocked over like I was by Veterans Community Project. It it was, it felt like home to me. It was like a forward operating base in Afghanistan and a startup in Silicon Valley had had a baby. And I went home that night and I said to my wife, Diana, I said, I wish I could just quit everything I'm doing and just go work there. But it wasn't a realistic notion. I was, you know, running for mayor. I was a politician. I still wanted to be president. I had just kind of taken a pass on that for a while. And, you know, so it wasn't a realistic notion to me. I went back to campaigning and, really not enjoying myself. And things kept getting worse. Six weeks after that tour is when I find myself on the phone with the Veterans Crisis Line. And then the next day, I'm in the suicide hold at the emergency department at the Kansas City VA. And I'm ready to make the announcement the next day, which I was planning to do, that I'm dropping out of public life. I'm going to go to the VA and I'm going to get help for PTSD. Because things have gotten worse pretty quickly after that, you know, in that six weeks. But I find out at the VA that, I wasn't enrolled, and so getting in was going to take some time. And it might be a few months before I could start weekly therapy. So I didn't know what else to do. So I called my buddy Brian Meyer, who was the co-founder and now CEO of Veterans Community Project. And I'm like, here's what I'm about to announce tomorrow. It's probably going to be big news. I am planning to go to the VA. but I don't know how to get this process sorted. I don't know how to navigate it. He's like, come on down. So I end up going six weeks after the You're Going to Be Mayor VIP tour through the front doors of the outreach center the walk-in center, just like thousands of other vets in Kansas City. I didn't get any special treatment. I was just another vet came in. And they did for me what they'd done for a lot of other people, which is they handled my paperwork for me. And instead of months later, I had my first weekly therapy appointment at the VA one week after that. And that, you know, you could argue that was a part of saving my life. And some time went by. I started going to therapy. I was responding really well to it. And I wasn't working. What I was doing was hanging around Veterans Community Project, VCP, we call it, a lot. I was growing a beard so people wouldn't recognize me and come up and try and console me all the time in public. And I was hanging out at VCP. And I was really into the place. I was really inspired by it. And at that moment, there was no out that was inspiring me. And they had been so successful in Kansas City that... A lot of other communities around the country were reaching out to the co-founders and saying, hey, can you come here and can you do in our town what you've done in Kansas City? Can you replicate your model? And they had never envisioned doing that. They just wanted to do this thing for their hometown and then kind of move on with their lives. But they couldn't say no to the idea of trying to help veterans elsewhere. And they knew what they had done was really revolutionary and unprecedented. So they were kind of having some false starts, some starts and stops with it. And I was hanging around and I had created a national organization before. So I started sort of mentoring the co-founders through you know, how they might be able to create a national presence and start doing this elsewhere. And a few months into that, Brian said to me, he's like, hey man, you seem to be doing really well with therapy you're not working. You're here a lot. You're giving us this advice. How about instead you just come here and work full time? And I knew right then that's what I wanted to do. So three years ago, I became the president of national expansion at Veterans Community Project. And in that time, we have uh, expanded our operations into the Denver area, where we are now We've been serving veterans through outreach programs for about a a little over a year, and we're now building a full campus there with a, a village of tiny houses, community center, the whole deal. And we are building a full campus with outreach and a village and everything in the St. Louis area where we'll start being able to serve and house veterans there this fall. We have broken ground on a full campus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and we have very recently purchased Uh, property in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and begun fundraising for that project, where we will start construction there in 2023. And then we have some other cities that we're in very serious talks with that I imagine we'll have some announcements about in the relatively near future. It is the best civilian job I've ever had. When I first deployed many years ago, a lot of people asked me, uh, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you volunteering to do this? And I ran out of ways to explain it to people who weren't in the service. And I remember finally settling on a very corny thing that I felt very deeply, which was, if I can do my job well over there, I believe maybe I can help some people come home safely who might not otherwise would have. And like most vets, I never had the feeling that I had really realized that. Because you often don't really know if you were able to make that difference. And that was one of the things that caused a lot of survivor's guilt and shame and that sort of thing for me for a long time. And then the first time I ever had any inkling of feeling that I had done that was a few days after I announced to the world that I was going to drop out of public life and go get help at the VA. I had been in a news detox. I didn't want to know what the impact of my story was because I didn't want to continue to live in my public facing persona. I wanted to actually focus on trying to get better, and I knew that meant trying to be as present as possible. So I had the people around me not telling me what was going on in the news. So I didn't know that it was the biggest story in the country and that it was an international story. And so three or four days after I'd made that announcement, I remember I woke up in the morning and my wife was looking at her phone. And I remember she said to me, I'm going to read you something that I just read in an article about you, and don't argue with me. I want to read you this. And I remember like kind of bracing myself. And she said, it turns out that uh, in the days since your announcement, calls to the veterans crisis line have tripled. And I remember I got very emotional. I'm getting a little emotional telling the story now. And it took me a minute, but I finally got out the words. It's been all these years, and this is the first time I've ever felt like I did something that helped somebody get home safe. And it was a really important moment for me. and now. I have this job where that's what we do. We help veterans get home safely, and I get to work on that every day. And it is a tremendous privilege, and it, And I work with a great group of people. You know, Almost all of us who lead the organization are not just combat veterans, we're veterans of the PTSD clinic at the VA, and we all understand that at one step left or one step right, we're not working at the national headquarters. We're across the street in the Kansas City village in a tiny house trying to get our life back together. And so I feel a real kinship with the people we serve. And, uh, you know, I, I love the work. And so people can support it uh, at vcp.org, veteranscommunityproject.org. And um, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to give you a very long answer to your short question about it.
1: That was Captain Jason Kander. To learn more, check out his memoir, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. All of Jason's royalties from the book go to supporting the Veterans Community Project. Make sure to check out our other interview with Kander on Burn the Boats when it releases on September 7th. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at Team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.